Hello, everyone out there. Uh, once again, I'm Peter. And I'm Gabriel. And this is What's Indie News, and the date is uh, 10-13. That is to say October 13th. On account of the date goes backwards in some parts of the world. Fine, fine. I'm just assuming that everybody who listens to this is going to be, like, American or Canadian. Do the Canadians um, not write their dates backwards? I suppose I did have a different birthday in Canada for a hot second because um, the date is backwards. There we go. <laughs> All right, so our topic for today is technology and agriculture. And more specifically, we'll be talking about mainly... Um, cloud computing and uh, uh, agricultural development in the modern world using that, right? Yeah, and the Internet of Things, IoT. Oh, boy. Oh, no. All right, so let's get at it. Gabe, uh, why, why is this important? Why is there a need for us to develop uh, technologies to aid in farming? Well, Peter... As we go forward, um, food uh, requirements around the world will be increasing up to uh, 60% by about 2050. Right. And, and that's, that's uh, from the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is uh, a non-governmental organization that uh, focuses policy on um, farming and food stability. There's uh, some variation on that number. Some people say 40, some people say 50, some people say 60. But no matter what, there's a, a huge uh, food shortage that we're facing in the future, in the very near future, right? Yes. Uh, it is currently 2018, which um, is a little crazy to think about now that we're closer to 2030 than we are to... 2000 at this point right and uh, these things are no longer the the concerns of like a distant future this is coming up and world yeah. population is um projected to stabilize around what is it around 11 12 billion people um and food is a necessity for all of them <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's another that's another important thing to bring up now is um, population will continue to increase uh, at this point in in our human history, I guess. Um, so that means not only will we be facing food shortages, but we will also have a decrease in farmable land as populations spread out. People need places to live, um, and also people need to consume a lot of the same resources that we need for farming. Um, for example, water is going to start getting more and more um, tightly constrained by the fact that we will have all of these new people who will need water for cleaning and um, consuming. And um, another study was show, showed that uh, by 2050, which again is not that far off, 
the average Nigerian will actually have 75% water, less water than it did in 1990, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Especially since like there are parts of the world uh, that are already water constrained uh, and those situations will just become worse. So uh, we need to find ways to uh, make uh, areas of our society that heavily rely on water to be more efficient, such as farming. And uh, that is, um, that's really where this technology and agriculture comes in, right? There's this, um, this term called precise agriculture, right? Which is about not treating the entire farm, the entire tract of land as, as uh, one homogenous zone, but as uh, looking at it granularly each each square meter even might require have different water requirements different nutrient requirements than the next and if you can look at that precisely and address that precisely then you can increase efficiency incredibly um what is this uh, according to international food policy research institute um data-driven farming has the ability to increase production um, given current inputs by up to 67%. So that's a real physical, practical, viable, long-term solution. Right. And, uh, and given the current inputs means that we won't necessarily need to expand farmlands or uh, expand our water resources that we need. It just... We keep everything level and we should be able to uh, achieve a 60% um, increase in food production. And we should, in theory, uh, if this this study is accurate, be able to meet that 60% goal uh, by 2050 to ensure people have some degree of food stability. Um, And also, there was a... which, Which study was it? Was it Farm Beats that suggests that using precise irrigation systems, which is um, sort of like a, uh, using precise irrigation systems uh, through Internet of Technology or Internet of Things uh, and cloud computing, we can actually increase output by about 45% while lowering water consumption by 35%, which is pretty crazy to think. Yeah, normally when you increase production, you do not increase um your efficiency by by the same level, right? Yeah. Uh, so let's let's touch on this a little bit. <laughs> what is the cloud, Peter? So the cloud. Um, so the cloud is um, essentially. So back in the olden days, um, the olden days, not being not that long ago, right? Uh, Computers are fairly new technology, but uh, before when you wanted to um, run a website or run a web app or something like that, you would physically have to go and buy servers, which are essentially computers that are connected to a network and hope you buy the right amount of servers for your needs. And it was very inefficient uh, and it was very expensive too. And it relied on a lot of um, expertise and uh, specialized knowledge. 
But what cloud computing has done is you have professionals who open their own servers uh, using, uh, well, professionals at organizations like Amazon or uh, Google or other big tech entities, um, they build their own uh, servers and they build their own data centers. And then they rent out uh, space on the servers and computing power to just anyone who is able to meet the, the money requirements. And you only pay what you need. So it's really cost effective. No longer do people need to have um, specialized knowledge about this technology, but they're able to directly tap into all of the benefits of cloud computing without any of the overhead. And uh, most people use cloud computing on an everyday basis or, or near everyday basis. Um, they might not necessarily know what that means, though. So a lot of uh, cloud-based technologies are things that are usually um, that, that traditionally you would just run on your own computer uh, locally. But what cloud technology has allowed us to do is we no longer have to run it on the computer. We can run it on the Internet. So examples of cloud-based uh, software are things like uh, Google Drive, Google Docs. Um, uh, what's another one? So Google Drive, Google Docs, um, OneDrive, which is the new system from Microsoft. And I, I'm not a fan of it. Um, Dropbox, I guess, was one of the originals. So um, cloud computing just allows you to store files on the internet and, um, and allows you to run programs through the internet as well. Yes. One of the, uh, the papers that we looked at here, Cloud Computing and Agricultural Development of China. Um, this uh, has, has a small overview of um, cloud computing and it's all of those things that we see as computers, as consumers. Um, but also of note is that uh, because cloud computing is a distributed computing technology, um, tasks can be split up from anywhere by uh, hundreds to millions of, of servers. Um, and so you get Super supercomputer-like capabilities through the internet. So it's everything from like backing up your photos of your nice trip to Tampico to um, having a supercomputer in your pocket, right? Tampico. <laughs> Did you just like draw that out of a hat? Like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that is a, another uh, good point is um, uh, bringing it sort of back to farming is in, in days long past, if a farmer wanted to experiment with new types of uh, planting methods or new crop rotations or anything like that, it was a very risky and time consuming and expensive process. But now uh, with cloud computing, you have all of these computers uh, that can work in unison to generate powerful uh, experimental simulations to see how uh, farmlands could be potentially impacted using given inputs. Yes, and uh, let's see, let's talk about 
um, some of the problems facing um, people in adopting this technological development. Um, so in uh, in China here, they have a huge agricultural sector, but they are not connected, right? Um, they describe it as uh, islands of information, which I thought was a brilliant little phrase. Because <laughs> um, that's really it. Like They, they have uh, individual farmers who have whatever small or large amount of land that they have, whether they are subsistence agriculture or providing for a village or a city or what have you. Um, because they're not connected, there's a lot that's, um, that's being missed out on by not being able to share that data with each other that they have. So, um, yeah, uh, that's true. And, um, that is one of the other benefits. Not only do we have this sort of, uh, ability to use precise, um, uh, irrigation and monitor nutrients and all of those sort of technical uh, benefits. We also are able to, uh, through um, through cloud-based computing, we're also able to share data quite widely all through a very uh, secure system. Uh, so what that'll allow people to do is not only are they able to um, share locally with farmers and uh, share knowledge and methodology. But also if let's say you are a cow farmer and your cow gets sick, it can be very costly to bring the cow to uh, a vet, which is maybe in a different city or um, maybe you have to travel with this, the sick cow. But with cloud-based computing, you can, um, you can share the symptoms directly with the specialist who never has to leave where they are, uh, nor does the farmer have to leave the area with his cow. And the veterinarian can then give suggestions and there can be a back and forth dialogue on how best to treat this cow. And so it makes um, monitoring uh, potential pests and diseases uh, a lot easier because they are able to, um, the farmers are able to communicate directly with specialists in their given fields and it's very cheap and cost-effective uh, as it's a very cheap and cost-effective means of, of doing that. Right. So for a, um, a purportedly low investment in hardware and software, you have access to a lot of benefits. Um, you uh, have access to uh, planting and breeding techniques, to pest control knowledge, um, tracking and monitoring process, um, from production to uh, circulation to consumption, um, which allows for a scientific uh, market forecasting and decision making and information collecting. Having having access to all these things enables farmers to uh, to um, gosh, <laughs> <laughs> they can streamline their their uh, time to to take it from the farm to the marketplace and have uh, a secure knowledge of how much their crops are going to go for and what the best time to sell is. 
and all of those sort of things that are traditionally very complex uh, economic um, forecasts, right? Yeah. I'm assuming that's what you're going for. That was exactly it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Uh, so, yeah, that's true. And uh, a lot of food is actually wasted um, and the time it might take to go from farm to table, right? A lot of food might be, um, there might be a pest outbreak where they're storing grain in a silo. There might be um, uh, a storm and a farmer might lose some of uh, their their grains or whatever. Um, so streamlining that, that time from farm to table was a way to cut back on food waste. And that in and of itself should be able to bump our output actually exactly yeah so we kind of hit on a lot of the benefits uh, tell tell me about average joe farmer uh farmer joe gabe tell me tell me about average farmer joe what what do you is this something this is something he's obviously going to be interested in but what might make him pause uh, um, why, why isn't everybody using this technology? Well, I can think of um, maybe two or three big reasons why someone would not jump on this, right? The first is going to be cost. Like, that's, that's going to be the first thing on anyone's mind is like, okay, this sounds great. How much will it cost me? Yeah, and just, just to, like, ballpark the cost, um, for one of the uh, sensors used traditionally in, in this um, Internet of Things based approach to uh, farming uh, can run anywhere up to $1,000 per sensor. And usually you want a sensor for every square meter of your farm if you can. Yeah, so like that's very expensive. <laughs> um, like they uh that's 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 real expensive (laughs) 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 Um, but at the same time uh there are a lot of um of strides being made toward uh, lessening those costs and lessening the need for a, a a huge swath of sensors um and we'll touch on that a little later with the farm beats paper but in terms of the other things that would give pause to a farmer looking to um, develop their technology side of things, um, so first you have cost, and then you're going to have, like, how do I set this up, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like this is, um, like, how, how difficult is this technology going to be to actually implement? Yeah, and uh, that's that's for sure. Like um, both Gabe and I are looking into implementing some of these precision-based irrigation systems uh, at our various uh, places that we work, and um, those those are two of the things that we're struggling right now. Um, we're struggling with right now, right? Is uh, where where can we find this for cheap? Because we. We don't have thousands of dollars to spend on uh, monitoring our the crops that these uh, these uh, coworkers are growing, and uh, the other thing is we need to figure out how to actually make the systems ourselves because uh, 
there's not a whole lot of access to where we are. And I'm thinking that's probably going to be the same for a lot of people in developing countries is this technology is just not integrated into their marketplace. So if, um, if a farmer in let's say Nigeria manages to get his hands on one of these precision uh, agriculture systems, and if one of the sensors breaks, there's not a very good chance that someone in Nigeria is actively making these sensors uh, for a replacement part. And so replacement parts would be very hard to find for people in developing countries. Yeah, that's a, that's a real problem. Um, again, like especially you said for the uh, developing countries, um, whether that be Nigeria or Mongolia or um, these were even problems that were touched on in the uh, development of China paper here that we read um, like as big and uh, like developed as China is there's a lot of disparity in that development What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I guess there's also, um, segueing from that topic, there is also just infrastructure in general, um, which is the cool part of the Farm Beats paper, is they're actively seeking ways to lessen the need for complicated infrastructure. So... Normally, um, there there was a paper that I didn't give you, Gabe, that had another uh, smart farm system based out of Australia. And uh, these guys just, you know, they provided internet for the entire field. The sensors just went up. They uh, uploaded all of the data from the sensors to the cloud, uh, which is really cool. Like you have very... Um, this this might be a little bit disjointed for people listening because I actually lost power in the middle of recording. Um, so we're going to try and pick up where we left off a little bit. Um, now, my note says um, I was about to go on a probably rant about... Um, a uh, potential pitfall for uh, <laughs> for smart farming and smart uh, uh, smart farming and smart agricultural systems, um, and one of the big ones that is going to make it very difficult to implement a smart farming system, uh, particularly smart farming systems in places that will need it most moving forward, such as. Uh, Southern Asia and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, one of the biggest problems that implementing these systems is going to have is just simply the lack of infrastructure, right? Is um, you, you can implement these really cool smart farming systems, but if they don't have cloud connectivity or if they don't have, um, if they don't have access to some sort of networking, abilities, then it's going to be next to impossible to do a lot of the cool um, analysis abilities that cloud computation gives you. Um, So without infrastructure and without the networking, people are still going to have to manually harvest this data and it's going to be 
um, maybe less laborious, but it's still going to be an issue trying to collect the data and um, organize it. So uh, in regards to uh, internet connectivity, like obviously the world is kind of moving forward with that slower in some parts than others, of course. Um, but so I think this might be a good part to, uh, to talk about the, the farm beats paper and what they were doing there. Because one of the issues that they addressed was limited connectivity, right? Oh, you broke up a little bit at the end there, but yeah, you sound mostly okay. Okay, well, everyone listening will absolutely know that I live in a small village, so whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, once again, Gabe is living um, in a very rural location, so he's actively experiencing some of the the infrastructure things that I was just talking about. Yeah. Uh, But anyways, moving forward, uh, Farm Beats. Well, what do we have to say about Farm Beats, Gabe? Farm Beats is a, um, well, first of all, it's a, a fledgling program. Um, right. It's only been operational for, I think, six months at the time of the paper uh, that we reviewed. Um, so, but it is still really cool and it's really well thought out and it was a really interesting paper to read. But yeah, very fledgling. Right. Um, it was um, it was used in a a farm in Washington, a farm in upstate New York, a small farm and a um, a pretty big farm with a lot of different products. So um, they they aimed for different types of use cases. Um, and Farm Beats is uh, uh, associated with Microsoft. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, so the cloud-based platform or the cloud platform that they use uh, is Microsoft Azure. Um, And that's just essentially who owns the servers is Microsoft, who owns the computers that actually collect the data and process it. uh, They're they're all owned by Microsoft. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. So not, not associated with but using their infrastructure just like anyone else might use Amazon or what have you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so uh, FarmBeats is an integrated and comprehensive approach to precision agriculture and cloud-based um, uh, agriculture, Internet of Things platform for data-driven agriculture is what they call it. That was a lot of words. Maybe we should like <laughs> dig into some of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the point is, though, is that like it's not just one thing. Like it's it's a lot of of different things um, all working in tandem to increase efficiency um, to uh, um, make the farmers' jobs easier and. Uh, at the same time, it approaches all of this while keeping in mind the the realities of rural situations, like limited internet connectivity, limited um, power, um, and, and also budget. 
Yeah, weather too. Yeah. Um, so uh, we mentioned earlier that like some of these sensors um, can cost up to a thousand dollars per sensor, uh, and that's that's a lot. <laughs> um, where Farmbeats aimed to um, use lower cost sensors as well as uh, reduce the amount of sensors needed um, by doing some really cool stuff with drones and algorithms and stuff, uh, which we'll talk about a little later. Right. So how, how, does, how exactly does uh, Farmbeats lower the costs of the sensors? Um, do, do you remember? Uh, they take, um, they take sensors and tack on Wi-Fi modules to them. But it wasn't just Wi-Fi modules. They were actually pushing it through TV. Oh, that's right. The, that's right. The TV sensors. Yeah. So the idea was, um, most farms don't have internet. Or, like, farms in the field don't have internet. Farms at the house might have internet or whatever. Um, so the idea was um, you can aggregate all of the data using TV frequencies instead of the internet. And then you can, uh, once you've aggregated that data, you can come up with summaries of it. And then you can upload those to the cloud. And it significantly cuts down on uh, networking constraints. Right. They they have a lot of like novel uses of different technologies that you wouldn't think to use these these things for what they're using them for. But it's I it's very impressive to me. <laughs> I I am not a farmer. I'm not directly involved in agriculture. Um, I'm not involved in uh, this really cool novel technology. So like. Maybe I lack the context, but it seems very impressive to me. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we should uh, give like a, a little bit of an overview of what they actually do with this technology. So um, maybe starting at the ground level, what they have is they have small computers. I think they said they use, um, what do they call it? Arduino computers, sort of like a, a small, cheap computer. I think they run maybe uh, $35 online. Anyone could buy them. And there's lots of tutorials how to actually make these sensors. And so they'll have those scattered throughout the fields. Um, and those are connected to the sensors and they're gather gathering data locally. And those are all transmitted to, um, what did they call those? Uh, like base camps or something like that? The base station. Yeah, the base stations. Uh, so uh, data is collected by the sensors. It's uh, sent over to the base stations using uh, TV uh, TV fre frequencies, and then the base sensor or the the base station will then send uh, data to a main farmhouse station that actually has internet connectivity, uh, which can then uh, sent it on to the cloud for later analysis or summaries or uh, whatever the farmer needs. So that's sort of the, the system overview is you have the very local, very um, small sensors, 
and then you create a map of uh, the conditions of the fields or uh, you know the pens where you're keeping your cows or, or what have you. Uh, you create this this map. You you aggregate all this data into um, one giant map where you can monitor things um, like soil soil moisture levels, uh, soil acidity, the nutrient levels, and you can get a very granular picture of what's happening plot by plot in the field. Right, and so like soil moisture and things like that. That those are taken from the ground sensors, obviously. Um, but like the, the normal approach to get like granular data like that would be to like put a ton of sensors in the field. But instead, what do they do? <laughs> they uh, have a drone that, uh, that takes video and maps out the entire field. And, uh, stitches it together and forms a basic 3D map as well. And then they use analytics on that to show the visual conditions of the ground, matching it with the sensor data, and then extrapolating from there where sensors aren't, what the conditions should be. And the... um, what was the uh, the result on that? Like the compared to traditional ways of extrapolating, like nearest neighbor, um, just taking the measurement from the nearest neighbor sensor, um, like that. It's orders of magnitude more accurate in how uh, how they can extrapolate data for the entire farm from just a few sensors. Yeah, the 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 maps that they create using the software and the maps that they the sample maps that they have in the paper were just incredible. Uh, they did heat maps of moisture conditions in the soil that were just absolutely astounding. Uh, the detail that they were able to get and the the drone maps that they they made uh, were incredible as well. Um, and if, if this is something that you're interested in, uh, definitely take a look at this, this paper. Yeah, so that, that, is, uh, that is really cool. And it'll be interesting to see where this technology goes because the farmers actually... So th- this, this is the thing with any like developing technology is it's usually developed in a lab by computer people who aren't necessarily sure of the best practices of how to implement the technology and what it can be used for. And that's the really exciting bit of this is we haven't really had it in the farmer's hands for very long, but even in the paper, they were saying that um, the farmers were using it to monitor like moisture conditions in their grain silos and um, the conditions of where they were keeping their livestock and they were using it in novel ways that the um, uh, the designers of the system never thought uh, not never thought of. And so that's the most exciting thing about these new technologies is once you get it into the hands of the people who will actually be using it, then the innovation on the technology is just there's there's no upper, upper limit to it. Yeah, and uh, that's that's one of the cool things about the system 
about the farm beat system in general is that there is that opportunity to expand upon it as needed and um and they have an app <laughs> they made an app to to go along with this so they anyone can uh access it from their phones i thought that was really cool like that they thought to do that in the first place <laughs> uh, everything needs an app these days um, i guess that's true yeah yes all right i think that's about all i have to say about farm beats i mean it's a really cool paper check it out if you're interested uh the unique the the new algorithms that they made uh the people designing this system are just incredible like the the thought that went into it uh for example they had an algorithm for their drone which when uh, there was strong winds uh, in the fields, uh, the drone would actually angle itself. So its widest um, face was facing the wind and the wind would actually propel the drone, saving on battery life. Uh, Sort of like a sailboat, which is really cool. And it shows a lot of uh, detail went into the planning of this. Um, And another, like... uh, they also planned for weather, right? Because a lot of this is solar powered and solar power isn't uh, great in upstate New York or Washington, which are not known for being uh, particularly sunny places. They're known to have their fair amount of rain, um, but they managed to have zero downtime for six months. And what that means is the system never went down. The system was never inaccessible for six whole months, which is pretty impressive. No, oh, yeah, for real. And uh, the way that they did that was they actually incorporated weather forecast and data into their um, their power cycling and their their duty cycling for the for the base station and the sensors. So, um, like, it, it didn't just it it wasn't so simple as like a manual like. Now it is like just going and putting the data output at like thirty percent to save on power. Like it, it, it detected the weather conditions and um, forecasted the power that it would need for those days. It was all just like a like very comprehensive, like thinking of everything, um, mostly based on those two big constraints of internet connectivity and power availability that are not always so uh, present in those rural situations. It was a, it was a cool paper. (laughs) It was really cool. Uh, um, Yeah. So I guess um, moving forward, the, there were other papers that I looked at, um, that I decided we shouldn't talk about. And the reason why I chose these papers in particular was because the, um, the first paper we talked about, uh, the one about uh, Chinese agriculture, shows that there is a drive from global governments uh, for this sort of smart farming technology. So it is something that's very likely on the horizon for a lot of people and it has the potential to increase 
the standard of living for a lot of people and increased like um, access to nutritionally valuable food and just increase the quality of a lot of food. And then the Farm Beats paper uh, that we were just talking about shows that all of the, the thought that's going into this process and how they're working to sort of circumvent some of the pitfalls of this technology and some of the, the constraints that the average farmer is going to have. Um, but I guess moving forward, if, you know, like I'm Joe Schmo, a uh, farmer in Kenya. What does this technology mean for me, Gabe? What is what is technology? How how will I um, have improvements in my life based on on technology? What are some of the uh, the ways moving forward that this can help just the average farmer in the world? And the average farmer in the world is, you, I think, I think. Um, a lot of farmers in the world are still uh, subsistence farmers living in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa and um, maybe Southern Asia. And they're the people that we need to increase productivity with. So how can this technology help? How well, how can technology in general help them? Right. So like these people aren't the ones that are going to be using the cool drone technology mainly. Um, just because it's expensive. Uh, but at, at the base level, cloud computing and technology in general, like that helps them know how much water to, uh, to use, how, um, how, how much fertilizer they need to use, um, weather conditions and and um that's actually huge too uh weather conditions right so um that's one of the things that's greatly improved farming productivity uh in certain areas is just knowing the weather forecast not even like the fancy cloud computing that farm beats is doing but just knowing what to expect for the next seven days and whether or not like for example, if it rains on the horizon, you might not need to tap into your, your water storage to, to water your crops because nature will do that for you and that saves you labor and costs. Exactly. It's like just just that basic level of, of internet connectivity and knowing that those resources are there with that internet connectivity, um, that, that can do a lot just by itself. Yeah. And so um, I've, I found some numbers uh, from various places, and um, it turns out that Kenya has about 15 million small-scale farms, uh, and the average age of the farmers there is 60. So um, technology, I think, will have a um, sort of two-pronged benefit for a market like that. Um, the first being in labor, which we have sort of talked about, um, where, you know, farmers will have, um, greater market foresights into, uh, what their, their produce should be selling for when they should be selling their produce. Uh, they all have access to, uh, specialists if they need it, uh, for pest control and 
uh, maybe livestock disease and what have you. But I think another thing that we're going to see is farming, particularly high-tech farming, uh, is going to be a greater interest to young people, right? People our age are super interested in, in computers and stuff. And if the governments of these areas, or even if, if uh, uh, tech suppliers of these areas are able to convince that uh, young people that farming isn't as labor intensive as it used to be, and you now have access to this really cool new technology, and you can be one of the pioneers in this field of technology, I think we're going to see more young people um, innovating from uh, developing markets uh, for this sort of technology. Yeah, and as much as um, technological improvements can sometimes trickle down, so to speak, <laughs> um, it, it's it's in in the developing markets on the ground level where those innovators will be able to adapt their technology to suit their environment best. Right. And really trickle down technology for lack of a better phrase um, <laughs> is <laughs> we should, we should probably figure out a better phrase for that. With all its baggage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that is actually kind of a dangerous thing. So there was a, an NGO with really good uh, intentions called one child, one laptop, um, which had the goal of getting every child in the world access to a laptop and educational games and access to an educational network of uh, professionals to increase the quality of education that children can receive. And that's like a really noble effort, but the big problem is, like I mentioned earlier, these were not integrated into the local economies. So there was, um, once the laptop break broke or a child outgrew the content on the laptop, there was no way to remedy those situations. And so having technological solutions uh, or high-tech solutions that are originating in the countries that will actually be using them uh, will be much more long-term sustainable and also probably more effective. Exactly. Yes. All right. So, um, I think that hits on just about everything I wanted to talk about. Um, do you got anything else? No, I don't think that we're probably... <laughs> well, can we just do one more thing real quick? What's that? The what can you do section. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Let's do that. There's... there's um, I, Gabe and I were talking about this of like uh, what what direction should we take the podcast what should we talk about and all of that stuff and um, one of the things that we thought about doing is have uh, what can I do uh, in regards to these sort of heavy hitting topics that we're going to be talking about and so today's topic was you know about technology and agriculture but really at the heart of it was um sustainable agriculture and access to food and food security. And so uh, we wanted to just sort of wrap things up with a 
what can the average person do, assuming that a large portion of our audience is going to be from America or maybe Canada or sort of living in the developed world um, or highly developed countries. And so we just compiled uh, sort of a list of various actions that really anyone could take um, to improve food security. So um, the first thing is uh, food insecurity isn't just a problem in lesser developed countries. It is also a problem in America and developed countries as well. So one in eight Americans are considered hungry, which means that they have um, uh, they eat on average less than uh, 1800 calories a day and Including in this one in eight Americans that are considered hungry, there are 12 million kids across America who are food insecure. Uh, so they don't have access, access to the nutritional food that they need to, to grow. Um, so one of the first things on my list is um, donate to food banks or soup kitchens, um, local organizations that are around your community already. Um, because local organizations are going to be better suited for solving local problems. So start with, with your neighborhood. I'm sure there's a food bank somewhere near you. I'm sure there's soup kitchens that are always looking for donations. So pack up some uh, nutritionally rich food and give it over to uh, your local soup kitchen because I'm sure they can use it. Um, then uh, I guess the second thing on my list is, um, and there's some controversy to this, I guess, but uh, if you have the money to buy fair trade, and I don't want this to sound like I'm using fair trade as a weapon to beat people with of like, oh, you're, you're not as good of a person because you don't buy fair trade. But um, for sure, if you're going to buy a chocolate bar anyways, and you have the extra, I don't know, two or three dollars markup that it might have, maybe consider buying a fair trade chocolate bar instead of um, another type of chocolate bar. Uh, because what fair trade means is it means that farmers who are making the goods that you are receiving will meet fair wage standards uh, and uh, meet certain environmental standards as well. And, uh, also, a percentage of the money has to go to education and, and things along those lines. And so what that means is um, farmers are often the ones that are actually facing uh, food crises, either because they don't produce enough themselves uh, to feed their families or because of uh, some sort of catastrophic event where they aren't able to sell as much produce as they thought they would. Uh, so fair trade is a way of saying, I will pay extra money to make sure that these farmers are able to provide for their families. So that's another thing. Um, I don't know, Gabe, did you have a direct from farm purchasing plan or, or something like that where you're from? What do you mean by plan? Because I know that there are options for doing so. Yeah, so in Ottawa, where I live, uh, in addition to the farmer's markets, which is a great way to support your local farmers, you could also um, pay, I think it was $50 a month, and you would get goods delivered directly to your house 
that were directly from the farmers. So it's sort of um, uh, a direct sale from the farmers, which also will help uh, support them. Uh, and you get the freshest fruit available because it's directly from the farms. Uh, so, and there's other community farming efforts. There's uh, community gardens that you can support as well. And that's a way to, uh, not only does that help the farmers, uh, but that's a way to ensure that their produce stays in the market and helps, um, helps the community meet food sustainability needs. That's a good point about buying local. Um, like uh, we were talking earlier just a little bit about um, how these the solutions for um, for gosh, hold on. <laughs> we were talking earlier about how the solutions for um, a lot of problems are best suited coming from those local communities. And, uh, as, uh, as difficult as it can be to be considered an ethical consumer, <laughs> um, in, uh, in the developed world, as, as it's called, um, like buying local is, is, is a good place to start just like consuming the food that is made locally that reduces a lot of uh, a lot of overhead, a lot of environmental waste, um, and just very simply, it does get you the freshest food available. Yeah. Um, and whether or not there's some sort of direct to your door plan, or just uh, going to the farmers market, like that's that's a good way to be. <laughs> A good way to be. So um, this next section, uh, there might be people listening to this pod who are moved to action because of it. And so um, they want to consider donating money to various organizations. So there is a little bit that I want to talk about that before we wrap things up. Um, so I have, uh, I have three organizations that I looked into pretty, pretty good and, um, sort of vetted as best I could through the internet. And I know as soon as I say this, someone's going to send us a tweet saying like, oh, these organizations are terrible. But as far as I can tell, um, they are doing good work. A lot of the money that they receive, uh, goes directly to helping the people. Um, so, uh, there's Action Against Hunger, which works with a lot of conflict zones, which is where um, uh, a lot of food insecurity is. Um, and there's uh, Heifer International, which is uh, another organization that I found pretty interesting. They are actually, uh, when you donate money to Heifer International, they actually buy livestock uh, for local farmers, uh, and those farmers are then able to, you know, I don't know, if they get a cow, they can sell the milk, if they get chickens, they can sell the eggs, and it actually helps lift um, their standard of living, not just uh, provide the immediate need for food. Um, and so there's also Bread for the World, which is specifically focusing on children. 
Um, and so those, those are some organizations that if you are very compelled to donate to, maybe donate. Um, I don't think I can officially advocate for, for money things like this, but, uh, there's another thing that I just wanted to say is there's um, a new trend in development called microfinancing, where uh, loans are given to local farmers in uh, developing countries or lesser developed countries, and uh, that they, they can then be used to invest into the farm itself to increase output. So maybe... I don't know, maybe a farmer wants to buy a tractor and he doesn't quite have enough to make it. So he uh, applies for one of these microfinance loans and then he gets the, the tractor, it increases productivity, and then he's able to pay off the loan. Um, so I just wanted to issue a word of caution to using these programs. They sound good. Um, but there is a significant pool of evidence that shows that they can sometimes be quite predatory, um, sort of maybe in the same vein as like a, a, a payday loan or something like that. Um, and there's even some studies that found that uh, families who have access to these microfinance loans have decreased attendance in school. And I don't know if that's, that's uh, correlation or causation, right? But do your research on the organizations because there are some organizations who are into microfinancing that are super beneficial for entrepreneurs. But uh, just make sure that if you are to give someone money, you've done your research. Don't trust me on any of these organizations. Do your own research and uh, make sure that the money is going where they it's uh, the organization claims it is and that um, the people are receiving the full benefits of what you donate. So that is my what I can do list. That is a good list as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, again, Let's just reiterate that we are not associated with any of these organizations or charities. Um, and we do, of course, advocate doing your own research in the best way that you can help if you are so inclined. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, yeah, so wrap up talk. So I guess. Um, yeah, hit us up on Twitter if you want to hear us talk about something or if you want to participate in this discussion on uh, food security and technology and or if you have other suggestions on ways people can help. Uh, otherwise, uh, this is What's Indie News and I'm Peter and you will hear from me again, I'm sure. <laughs> and I am Gabriel and... You might hear from me again. My internet's pretty bad here. <laughs> <laughs> the contents of this podcast are ours personally and do not reflect any position of the U.S. government or the Peace Corps.